one brother said to me, it's like, rough. if it wasn't for girls, you know, man then wouldn't be doing none of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Surviving Society with Shanto and Tiso. Towards more sociable sociology. Welcome to Surviving Society with Tiso and Chantel. We are really excited to be joined with Dr. Yusuf. Dr. Yusuf. <laughs> Can I call you Dr. Yusuf? Yeah, I heard someone yeah, else call you Dr. Yeah, Yusuf and I was like, I, I really that like that. That originated from Loki <laughs> We first met Dr. Yusuf like over a year ago now. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. at the Undisciplining Conference, which was really cool because... It was the first time being in like an academic conference, being around like people that were from yeah. similar backgrounds to us, wasn't Just it? Just people from the bits, man. Normal people. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone, not everyone. There was, there was a contingent. There was a contingent. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us, Yusuf. You're going to talk to us today about your ongoing research. I know you've recently published a paper, haven't you? Which we're going to put in our yeah. episode guide. It's open access on Birmingham City University. Oh, um, no, so there's a preview. So all of the stuff we put in, I think it's stuff that goes in the ref, I'm not sure. All of that stuff has to go into the depository, which is made open access. But I think it can only be accessed by people that can log into BC. I'm no, sure. babe. Really? Anyone open, open. Oh, wow. So there you go. Yeah. There is open access. But anyway, so you can, we'll put the link to Yusuf's article that we're going to talk about today in this episode guide. Yusuf, tell us about your research, your essential research. My research is on, well, my PhD research and kind of stuff that I'm still developing is on road life in the UK. Road life is kind of the best way or most accessible way to describe it usually is like a form of variant, UK variant, black influence form of street culture, right? So there's all kinds of different forms of street culture globally. This specific one has some like black diasporic links to like, you know, the Gilray kind of transatlantic. Black the black Atlantic, links, yeah. Black Atlantic, that kind of stuff. So through connections to like hip hop, uh, or rap music, things like that. But also, um, it's commonly associated with some of like some forms of like black cultural production. But it's not specifically necessarily speaking a black street culture arrangement, which is important, right? Particularly when we talk about we talk a bit before the show about criminalization and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And street cultures generally tend to be occupied by marginalized groups. And in the UK, the, the demographies of marginalized groups are quite complex, isn't it? So to just say that it's a Definitely a black influence street culture. That's mm. the best way to describe it. It's kind of been popularly, you know, so right now we're in quite a hot moment in terms of like UK rap. Mm. UK rap's going through like a big revival. In fact, probably this is the biggest UK rap has ever been in terms of the mainstream, I think. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's international reach <coughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because before I think it used to be more connected, more closely connected with street scenes or street spaces. Uh, so like sound system culture and stuff like that. Mm. And that's one of the kind of cultural elements to this kind of form of street culture. But nowadays, through digital media and things like that, also I think through uh, the fact that it's just taken off as well, that the art, the art forms have developed here, that have crossed over the Atlantic and from the Caribbean other places, have developed here and become kind of more interesting, more powerful. It's a lot more developed, man. Like, I would say, being involved in the sound stuff at Carnival, yeah. from that stuff to where we are now, it's a big difference, man. Yeah, it's mainstream, yeah, yeah. man. But that's you know that's the 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 thinker that I think think with or I like to read a lot of like broadly a lot of the CCCS lots or the School of Cultural Studies, the former School of Cultural Studies at Birmingham, but Stuart Hall, and he had a lot to say about the way that you know sort of new ethnicities things change and cultures and ideas mix over time, right? 
And I think that's what we've seen in the UK is that over time that there's been a kind of, I wouldn't call it evolution, but development in the sounds and the practices and a professionalisation to some extent. So if you talk to a lot of the artists now, particularly a lot of my thesis isn't strictly speaking about music. I've got some connections obviously to UK music, given where I come from and familial and in my friendship now. In fact, where do you come from, Yusuf? We know um, where you do, but our listeners don't. <laughs> oh yeah, so I grew up in um, Brixton in South London. And most of my participants actually are people that I just knew, I'd known, yeah. either through people or over a long period of time. So obviously speaking to people about or sampling through gatekeeper organisations was quite a challenging thing to do um, for different reasons. Because usually the people that you find through gatekeeper organisations have been criminalised in some way. Or but actually, I don't think that's representative of road culture or road life in the UK. I think if you read like earlier people, the kind of first people that are writing about it in the context of the UK, like Anthony Gunter, stuff like that, he's talking about it more as a kind of everyday thing. It's about everyday practices, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that gets lost a lot of the time. So what would you say, what's the popular imagination definition of road culture? Kind of a cross between Top Boy, yeah, like mm-hmm. Channel 4. Um, Stormzy. <laughs> Stormzy, possibly, yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. But actually, like... When you're talking about it on a kind of maybe a deeper or more sociological level, it is just how do you get by? Like these kind of subcultural formations generally developing response to partially to do with cultural flows. Like I think one of the things that we shouldn't miss here, right, is that there's cultural flows and these cultural flows have got value and they're really, really important and they explain a lot about how we came to be here, right? Or how subcultural arrangements came to develop, but also about social exclusion and marginalization that street cultures tend to develop in those spaces and it's about finding ways to create value and meaning and all these other things in the context of, like, social exclusion, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's... And again, when we're talking about development, in my work, one of the things I talk about is that I think amongst young people particularly, there's been a recognition or a kind of realisation that, rah, what we have has got a lot of value outside of where we are. And kind of the kind of central, one of the central ideas of my work is that actually they're struggling over that value now. Mm-hmm. Is they're saying, so why is it that we aren't benefiting mostly from the value that we're creating? Because mm-hmm. only the <laughs> value we is created was, in those spaces. We were talking about this in a podcast the other week yeah. about how I was asking our guest, it was Zara, I think, from No More Exclusions, are young people having a sort of new or revived realisation about their environments and what it means to be marginalised and the injustice of that like or is that some is that something that's always happened and it's got a new there's a new lens to it for me I think it's always been the case always been the case so you recognise its value so I I think the best analogy is probably used with music so we always knew we're good at music but we can't make that value and box it Mm-hmm. We make all the money, we track the fights, but how do you make that cap? So how, where's that white guy making all that money? And most mm-hmm. most boxers tend to end up destitute, but we always know how do we change that value? Yeah. We're creating all this value, but you're still marginalised us. You're, we're still the prize fire. We're still this. We're still we're still the commodity. Mm. But this has always been the case. But what happens is, I speak in my own position. Um, as a kid, I knew there's power to what I've got. The street culture, the that street, there's power to it, mm. but. How do I, the skills that I have, how do I turn them into mainstream? It's difficult. It's a difficult process. As you know, there's, I've got a chapter. I don't know how, it's the article actually I'm writing at the moment. I'm developing it around. Because basically, the knowledge is there, right? So mm. there's people writing about street capital. There's people writing about the gang industry. Mm. The fact that 
the problems of road or problems associated with road or street spaces are essentially through kind of there's a really good article by him um, it's quite hard to read sometimes but I've I met him at a conference and he really broke it down nicely. Ian McGimsey talked about like the financialization of youth services, the way in which they've been turned into kind of similar to financial services, i.e. you have to be able to do certain kinds of sums or equations. Basically, the idea in, in a nutshell is that rather than just buying services off of service providers, now nowadays, what this is why the large organisations are starting to suck up all of the funding, right? Because now they have to demonstrate what will be the financial outcome. Yeah. So for every pound they put and in, and certain competencies that they understand, yeah, that yeah. that the local youth workers want, mm. right? So it's put them in a disadvantaged position. It's also meant that there's a lot of money to be had if you have that kind of financial specialism and capital out of cultural yeah. capital as well, yeah, <laughs> out of um, social problems, right? Oh so. God, yeah, that's so, like, <laughs> listening to that, it's like, I can totally see how that's playing out, 100%, yeah. So it's and an it's investment, just, right? It's having, like, a realisation that that's what's happening is a bit, it's taking me back a bit, actually. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of, that was the crux of, like, my whole work, really, was, that like, speaking to these people, like, speaking to people on road and people that, the, the thing is, is, like, I always got this kind of, it's, it's funny kind of relationship with it, because these are stories that I know. Yeah. These are people that I know, and I know them in other contexts, and I know mm-hmm. them, you know, in all different ways, right? But then you listen to these stories, and you realise actually how so many of the people around you are living such kind of quite heart-wrenching and difficult stories. And then I think it, when you put into that context, a lot of other things, particularly some of the men them are doing mm. outside of it, start to make a lot more sense. I think when you're in it, it's normal. Yeah. So when people are talking to me, it's normal. I won't think anything what they say to me. It's only when I've been away and I think you're wrong, and then you start looking at it from that kind of a, a kind of a dispassionate point of view. Mm. And you're trying to understand the structure, how they're placing the structure, and what almost led them. It's like a rational choice because they had no choice really. They're the yeah. choice that made up to them. Yeah, I think they call. I don't know who calls it this, but like researchers who return mm. home. Yeah. So my PhD yeah. is looking at is is like returning home as well. And I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you had this, Yusuf, but as yeah, someone who's returning home with research but return into researching issues of marginalization and racism that you knew existed when you were in quotation as at home thinking that you know what you're going to find but then when you go in it's much worse than you thought that is something which I have found like obviously our research is totally different but from just the perspective of doing research where, yeah, there's issues of marginalisation and the fact that you've got a personal relationship with the both the people and the area. I just found it almost like, I don't know, I've, I've sort of needed to talk in a non-academic way about the fe- the feelings that you have about it at the time. It's just, as you say, heart-wrenching and sad and it's another layer to it. Yeah, I just think that it's the context that's missing a lot of the time that actually what it's like in the quiet moments of these people's lives. That's where the mum pain, yeah. right? That's what the mum pain is. So we're talking about my uncle, the mum pain. And the mum pain actually is completely a vacuous concept. What is it? What, if you can define it's, it for us. So wait, like before you yeah. try, so this is a this is a concept that you've come up with through your research. Yeah, so basically it's, it's, I used this methodology. So we were talking about knowing what you're going to find. So what I actually did is I had very, very vague research questions. Is because... I didn't want to have some kind of hypothesis to go and prove something that I felt like I already knew, right? 
I decided to actually, you can't go in with an open mind. That is a different mm-hmm. scenario, right? I couldn't do that. I can't go in and not be who I am. But I can go in and try and offer possibilities for broader sets of experiences and ideas to appear, right? Mm. So I had completely unstructured interviews that I usually started with, told me how it all began. Mm. And usually people talk about where they were born, the circumstances of their birth. Um, but not always. Um, and we would just talk. A bit like how you lot kind of do the, mm. the podcasting, see what comes through and see how people respond. And so that was kind of what we describe as like an inductive mm. methodology, right? Um, and I, I used a mode of analysis which is called like sensitizing concepts, which is basically like uh, you can kind of compare it to other like what I find basically is a lot of kinds of analysis that we do, like thematic analysis. How many times does this word appear? Does that mean that this word is important? The number of times a word appears doesn't necessarily make or give you the poignancy of that word, right? Exactly. We use a lot of words a lot of time that don't necessarily mean that much to us, right? For me, it was about the way those interviews were kind of emotive encounters. Those I call them like interview encounters or ethnographic interview mm-hmm. encounters. And ethnographic in the sense that we had that long, longer standing. Mm-hmm. Not with everyone, right? But I had like a kind of position, positionality with each person that was slightly different. But we had a kind of... Mm-hmm some level of understanding. Um, and I just was drawing out the themes and the feelings and sometimes they're feelings, right? That's why, because you, you mentioned earlier, like it's a rational choice. Sometimes I don't think it's always a rational choice because sometimes it's a, a felt thing as well. I do, I know what you mean, mm-hmm. is in it makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense. It's, rational, it's rational given the feeling yeah. that someone had, right? Yeah. I completely agree with that. But it's sometimes what, what I was picking up on was that what was important wasn't necessarily what, we were saying as much as how we were, f- how they were feeling and how they were communicating. You see, I've kind of caveat that because yeah. I've been reading like lots of Hume. They're, they're, they're together, basically, rational and emotion. They're together, so you can't yeah. separate them. So the, the emotion gives you the context, the feeling yeah. that you want to do something. Yeah, and it kind of push, yeah, so, yeah. It's just because you know what it is, yeah, in criminology, yeah, a lot of the time our students run to like rational choice theory, innit? Yeah, yeah. God, yeah, that's probably, what I thought as soon as you yeah, said that, like yeah, the merch and stuff. Yeah, that's what and, yeah. I was trying to yeah, 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 I'm, I'm with you on that still. And then um, because it makes sense, yeah, yeah it makes sense. sense man. And the mum pain basically, so the mum pain in that context, so I've picked up this sense and I kept this kind of malaise, see, right, Mills might call the malaise, right? This kind of sense of just things, shit not really being alright and having to kind of make do the best you can. But never really feeling like always feeling like a bit foggy, in it, always feeling not quite together, and always feeling those kind of things that I think a lot of people experience, right? But in the context of road, I had to theorize it in a certain way. Hmm. So what I would argue is probably the mum pain and certain structural factors that underpin that feeling of just shitness um, would exist in a lot of walks of life. But however, the caveat is and, and why it's a kind of hollow, empty, uh, empty. Um, concept is or vacuous yeah. concept is it's just the name of a feeling the things the structure and the way of anal- analyzing the causes of that feeling so when i'm analyzing it in that way i don't want to say right these people have depression or these people because there's enough people out here diagnosing people with individual deficits or individual deficiencies like depression or whatever they are and treating them with pills or treating them with causes of cbt what i was saying well actually what are the structural root causes that could be leading to people systematically feeling this way feeling completely disaffected or feeling emotionally drained or which then can be explained alternatively through things like depression or other, you know, mental health explanations or whatever. And so that's where it kind of came from. It's just this it's a it's just a feeling, right? Yeah. And then when you understand that feeling of what it feels like to be marginalized in the everyday 
and in the context of actually quite affluent city, affluent set of circumstances, you're living in a city where now increasingly there's a lot of money money flying around, yeah. right? It's becoming more and more difficult to live here. And um, what do you do? Yeah. And I think the road is a, a response, right? It's where a space where your concerns take centre stage. It's a space where you can provide meaning and value and earn those and kind of gain those things and alleviate. So what I argue is that feeling a lot of the time is what, when you listen to like people that do self-help, they play so hard on people's insecurities, right? Mm. You don't have to feel like this anymore. Da, 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 da. And what I argue the road is, is a kind of form of cultural production or street culture generally to alleviate that feeling. Mm. And I would argue that probably far-right racism could also be yeah. seen, <laughs> seen, yeah, yeah, yeah. seen in that way or... Other other feelings or see other ideas or other cultural uh, kind of phenomena could mm. be seen in that way as a response to just feeling like like fuck like do you know what I mean that, yeah. that. the madness is you know you're in it you don't you don't you don't you know there's a general feeling but you don't even understand mm. in the, in that kind of way you just yeah. you just know you just make those moves man yeah and I, what exactly I think that everyone's just trying not to feel. Mm. Sharing it, like everyone's thinking, what can I do to make myself feel better? Or what can I do to, you know, and those feelings. So, like, what I argue is that it's tied into like so many intimate places. So, love was one, like, one of the things, big things actually. I interviewed men and women in mm. my thesis and um, for my thesis. And one of the things that I picked up a lot on was about like intimate relations and how intimate relations were really saturated with these feelings of like kind of, kind of. I had like a sex subsection in my thesis called <laughs> Things Fall Apart. Help, <laughs> helplessness. Yeah, and like, but also the way in which people were kind of cultivating this sense of value through wanting to feel loved and desired mm. and all those things. In, and that's why they were cultivating these kind of dispositions and these kind of... One brother said to me, it's like, Ralph, it wasn't for girls, you know. Man, then wouldn't be doing none of this stuff. <laughs> like, obviously, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not co-signing that. Yeah. Like, I'm not co-signing that. Innit? But what I'm saying is, is, is that... It, it translates or it kind of kind of permeates into so many intimate areas of people's lives that I think traditionally sociology, feminist sociology more so, but soci- like has been able to do it, but sociology more broadly hasn't really maybe been able to do so. So, so I was going to ask you then, so the big, I suppose the big kind of question that everyone wants to know, well, not everyone, but what they would ask you because you talk about uh, road life, street life, yeah. would be a knife crime. We don't call it that, we call it serious youth violence. Yeah. Yeah, that's a Carla Reader find up for us, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so everyone would understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah knife crime, yeah, yeah. So, go on. What do I think about? So, my article actually has, was on youth violence, you... but um, that one that we were talking about earlier. Um, but that was just the frame, really. Yeah. You do you mean what's the connection with the Mumpane or what, yeah, what's my explanation? Yeah, and, and you're just, you're just your view, man, really. I think that it's really complicated. Yeah. So, like, Gary Young actually did some big thing with The Guardian, and actually, it wasn't that bad, it was quite good. Um, and he talked about how 25% of it is gendered violence, actually. So 25% of all knife crime is actually against women and it's gendered violence, which is, again, another big problem that ain't nobody talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Or people are talking about, but talking about in isolation from a more general problem. Yeah. And um, I think that is illustrative of the fact that a lot of the time that knife crime gets kind of embodied into or personified as young black and male, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a problem because actually across the country that's not representative, right? Firstly, no, yeah. 
um, which is kind of links to all that stuff around Joe. So if Joe was like, you know, Joe was the problem, which is, I don't believe it's it not. is. Like that so <laughs> it wouldn't be the so case. For re- yeah, not. for this is like, no, that's drill music, yeah. um, which we have actually spoken about. Yeah, so I think one of the things that gets personified into a kind of black male problem, and it's not actually necessarily... I think in London, potentially, like the statistics maybe would bear that out. But in my article, one of the things I talked about is that the mum pain does affect people in such a way that can lead to violence. But it isn't a direct thing. It's about the ways in which they can do something about their sense of malaise. Mm. And for the young people that I spoke, so the young people that I spoke to, some of them, the, the two young men in the article were, were in a gang that was Mets, the London Mets gang unit, wherever they are. They were their number one priority for several years. And if if you look at what they've done to the, the physical space that those young men inhabit, so there's a lot of CCTV, highly concentrated policing, lots of bully vans attending regularly if they see a group of young men on that state congregate. I don't know if it's like that so much now, mm-hmm. but definitely f- between like 2011 and, I don't know, maybe 2015 was like the last time I spent a lot of time there. Um, they would, if you've got a congregation of young men on the estate, they send a bully van and they have quite advanced CCTV. Like So they have CCTV that can pretty much pick out individuals. I think mm-hmm. it's manned, it's yeah. turns, it's on these big sticks. And um, it was sort of hyper-police those spaces in it and they were involved in quite a lot of stuff it's not to deny that they weren't sort of doing violence right they were doing violence I'm not, I'm not trying to say that they weren't but um I think the cause of that partially was that sense of malaise but it's like what kind of spaces can we give these young people to get a sense of meaning in their life right and what kind of spaces can we give them to how can we turn this into a way of uh, increasing their level of inclusion in society or mm-hmm. feeling of inclusion because one of the things in speaking to them that I picked up was that that's what they wanted. Is they didn't want to live on the margins of society and they hated the fact that people thought that they were on the margins of society, right? They wanted to be included, but what they wanted is inclusion in kind of culturally equitable terms. So they wanted inclusion that was equivalent to inclusion of like white middle-class peers. Mm. Yeah? <laughs> so, it just reminds me, is it, is, it, is it common stuff on subculture? Yeah. Like yeah, skinheads and yeah, similar, 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 well, I went to university with a lot of white boarding school <laughs> men, yeah. and I can tell you they behave atrociously. That space in terms of yeah. in terms of yeah, gender based violence, general violence. Like I don't know, like I just find. But it... But the thing is, is that phase of youth, you then transition out into the workplace, mm. yeah. and it kind of waters. It doesn't necessarily go away, mm. but waters right when you don't have. So another thing that's also important to talk about in the contemporary setting is that youth transitions have completely... Number one, yeah. Traditional youth transitions for black and minority ethnic people weren't necessarily the same as what they were for, like, the broader demographic, right? Mm. So we've got to remember, marginalised transitions were always problematic. Mm. So number one, which is, again, another explanation for street cultures, because you can't expect to necessarily have the same kinds of transition yeah. from, you know, school to work to owning your own house and having your own family and whatever it is, these imaginary transitions that we had, you can't always necessarily expect that because mm. of different access to employment, different access to education, all of those kind of things. But in the contemporary setting, that's been exacerbated. That's the word I'm looking for. 
and exasperated as well. <laughs> but um, and those are problems as well. So again, the transitions that y- these young people have is like, all right, I went to a school where I was disaffected and it wasn't like one of the boys was talking to me like, yeah, you got stabbed in my school and like the teachers were just sort of trying to, and I, I know that feeling. I went to a state comp- back when there was state conferences and they were less securitized in the contemporary schools. But there was a feeling that they were just, some of the time, just trying to keep a lid on it. Like, they weren't necessarily trying to meaningfully engage us. And this is what I think is mm. wrong, is that you can go after them to try and get make them get GCSEs, which is one thing, right, that will give them a, some form of transition, which is, which is positive. But meaningfully engaging them means something different. And I think that these things are sort of missing, is that one of the reasons why, for example... They might not do so well in school. Young people that are kind of street affected, is because there's not, and the school isn't speaking to them. That's why the street is able to speak to them, right? That's why the street speaks to them because the school don't speak to them. You see, I did. See, until you said that, I didn't really think of like what you said in terms of transitioning, like yeah. in terms of my own progression. When it comes by the time I get to university, I don't really care. Yeah. I'm going because my mum sent me here. <laughs> but I don't yeah. care. I don't engage yeah. because I've got more engagement in my house, yeah. and, and they're doing things that are more meaningful to me. Yeah, and it means, yeah, and yeah. and I get I get cultural capital from these things that yeah, I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna keep doing them. When I come here, I just think these people are dickheads, bro. So you get me? <laughs> so it's it's a funny thing, but these transitions come late, and some of my friends or some people that I know, they can't make that transition, and they end up in the criminal justice system because they get too, they become, they start living their life for real. But even live, I mean, so one of my arguments is that even those that live that life for real. They're actually exchanging capitals, which are still trying to be meaningfully exchanged back into other fields of life, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a body using kind of approach in some extent. So kind of what I say is that there's a kind of, the kind of more kind of, what do you call, formal fields of value of, you know, education, whatever, that like, aren't engaging them. But I would argue that street culture has a kind of field, right? A field that's kind of cultivated partly by the professionals that construct gangs, partly by the police, partly by the media, partly by the young people themselves. So there's a kind of field, I don't know if it's quite the same. I mean, there's someone called Sandberg that's done some writing about it, and at first he dismissed the possibility that it could be a field in street culture. And then later on he sort of said in a kind of 2016 article that maybe maybe we could understand it in a more fluid, that concept of field in a more fluid way to allow for that. But I'd argue is that a lot of those young people that go on road and doing like, you know, what Gunter uh, would call badness, right? Like mm. uh, we're talking like really trapping or mm. whatever it is. And some of that then is that kind of lifestyle is then obviously emerging in the music, right? Um, they still got an eye on the mainstream. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like... And what I describe as kind of strategies, right? And even the things that they can get from those activities are things that are still exchangeable back into mainstream society, right? Yeah. So I think that like some of the stuff that, that that they were talking about is like trying to stack peas mm. from the drug economy and then trying to use that money in to create investment capital into the legitimate economy. And actually what we do know, like a lot of, like, the organised crime research, which perhaps I don't want to apply to my research, but mm. it's interesting as a kind of side note, is that a lot of, like, during the recession, for example, a lot of people were saying that actually it was organised crime money, drug money yeah. from the cartels that was plugging the... Gaps. What, buying houses. <laughs> like, yeah. Finishing the houses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were. Because like, drug money is essentially it's liquid capital, cash, right? Yeah, it's cash. You don't You don't sell drugs on credit very often because <laughs> the, the people that buy them tend not to be that reliable, right? So, like... Um, 
they, they, they have this idea. Other strategies were to use their kind of street social capital to facilitate, to maintain their safety in the space. Like people with brothers. We all know that guy in the ends that had bare cousins or bare brothers and nobody <laughs> yeah. touched him, but he was bare jarring <laughs> that we heard him. But <laughs> do you know what I mean? So they would use their kind of street, what I'd call street yeah. social capital, right? So there's yeah. like, we already identified economic capital, social capital. Then there's the kind of street cultural capital, which is a bit more kind of um, complex, mm. right? So you're talking about things like, is it, is it the way that they carry themselves? Is it like the embodied values? Is it? But all of those things can be commercialized. Yeah. Look at look at like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't want to say any names in it, but a lot of the UK rappers, right? They do they do commodify that as mm. well, yeah. and they've realized that other people were commodifying it for a long time. Mm. So I'm gonna rock commodify yeah. <laughs> commodify this in it. And um, so I think all of those things can be exchanged back in. Mm. And there's a bit of a denial about the fact that actually they, this can happen. And I, what I think is probably the revolution, not necessarily revolution, but the change that I'm seeing is that young people are recognising that and they want a piece of the pie. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And I think that we have to think about that in an interesting way, is that actually could this also be opportunity? Because obviously when you commodify something, you usually take away its association or you water down its association with criminality right, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. But I don't think that, you know, the value that these young people this or people on road necessarily create has to be associated to crime. Mm. I don't think that that has to happen anyway. So if we're thinking about more democratic processes whereby they can actually uh, benefit from the capital they produce, I'm kind of in favour of that. I know that that sounds like a bit of a black capitalist kind of approach. Yeah. That's a bit of a Nipsey Hustle tactic. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and I'm not necessarily my actual disposition or my actual kind of whatever ideological beliefs actually is quite opposed to those kind of perspectives, right? But as a kind of pragmatic thing... Yeah. <laughs> we can't make all young people Marxist socialists, can we? Like, there's got to be yeah. Yeah, a pragmatic response. But I think it's to, to escape that kind of sense of hopelessness... Mm. And that it's an empowering thing. If you can, if you can create those networks and that framework, that's mm. more community led. Yeah, that's empowering, man. Yeah, and like, like so, I got a little brother that does music in it, and he's quite. He does well now. He's, he's he pretty much lives completely. Like he does music. That's his job. Mm. And um, so oh, he'll amazing. do like a video. Will do like a million to four million views, kind of thing. So he's in that kind of middle bracket of like success, mm. semi successful rappers or mm. with like kind of UK fan base, specific fan base and stuff like that. And um, I think that it did take about 10 years for that to happen, partly for the, <laughs> like, the industry to develop. Yeah, yeah. But also for him to kind of cultivate that fan base as well, that core fan base. But I think that actually what you're seeing is what they're doing is finding alternative ways to express or to commodify that value. So they don't have to go on road no more. Like when my brother was 17, see, no, he's just about to, he went to jail on his birthday actually. Mm. <laughs> so, like back when we were young, yeah. I did my, yeah. I was in my, doing my first year of university, he went to prison. You know, I feel like, I feel very proud that he's yeah. managed to make that transition into doing something, number one, that is meaningful to him, and number two, that gives him a degree of independence, right? And I think one of the conversations that we have, again, which is a bit like the black capitalist agenda, is that what are you going to do with your money now? or when you get money now, or when you get this success now, how are you going to do something with it that is going to benefit you for, and your son and whatever for the rest of your life, right? But see, what's interesting, when you said they're looking for alternative avenues, that's the same thing like with sneaker culture. So now, yeah. instead of doing this hustle, people will sell trainers. Yeah. But what's, what, what's concerning is that once you commodify something, 
like for example in the trainer industry you get the middle class kids who have yeah. ink, like unlimited way more capital, way more capital <laughs> and they start buying it all up basically yeah, and yeah, so yeah, and they start taking, and then the and then the issue comes over with appropriation mm. so they start coming and start taking bits of that culture and moving it to the, what they would do so for example mm. I'd go to Sneakerness for example and a lot of white middle class kids mm. wearing Supreme with all these labels, Louis Vuitton and Trapstar. Trap yeah, yeah. yeah. Trapstar's got like a proper shop in Birmingham, you know. Like yeah. A proper, proper shop. <laughs> Trapstar. But you just think, so when you see that and then you ask them about it, they have no idea what they're wearing mm. or why they're wearing it. It's just because they can. Yeah. So, it, like, I'm on the fence, innit? Like, mm. about it. Because I think that I couldn't tell nobody that does rap or that's doing something and that they know that through doing those processes that it's leading to appropriation, right? Mm. I can't tell none of them not to do what they're doing in a sense because they're just doing something that's meaningful, right? They're doing yeah. something that can uh, accumulate capital for them or to change their circumstances. At the same time, obviously, I do have a lot... So, in lots and lots of different ways, yeah, we touched on it earlier, I have a lot of ethical problems doing the kind of work I do. Unknowing some of the things that the people I'm working with and or I'm interviewing and trying to re- like represent or represent... Um, to academic audiences knowing some of the things they've done or they do and how I square that circle for example one of the, the dilemmas I had I had a lot of stuff around domestic violence or gender violence and I still don't know what to do <laughs> to do with that to this day like mm. I did write a bit about it in my thesis right so there's a lot of ethical issues in it that we have to confront in our kind of our research practice and also in our lives I suppose as, as kind of minoritized people and I just Sometimes, I suppose, it's hard to have an opinion on everything. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I know that sounds yeah. mad yeah, yeah, yeah. as an yeah, yeah. um, academic. But when I see things like that, so I don't really engage in a lot of cultural appropriation debates and stuff like yeah. that because I see that it's happening and I completely understand the processes where powerful people are taking control and also commodifying the things that we're, we're producing, right? Or, you know, communities of colour or marginalised communities are producing. But at the same time... Like, what I think about is how can we help people in these, like, from man's environment to also get a piece of that, innit? <laughs> so that's kind of the dilemma that I see it, is that... Yeah, appropriation always going to happen. Yeah. Always, it's always going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the market, Yeah, right? but you're trying to help people, and that's, I suppose that's the difficult thing, man. And I think that, that, that like, that's an area that perhaps... I know they do all this kind of enterprise stif- stuff for young people, and I sort of don't approve of it in some ways, but um, I think that... What we see and what I see from the roads, right, is tremendous creative energy mm. for all kinds of different stuff. Because it's, you know, if you look talking about music, it's not just about artists, right? It's not just Definitely. about man that rap. It's people with all kinds of different technical and artistic mm. creative yeah. skills. And from day street culture, from the United States, hip-hop culture has always been diverse in the skill sets that people have, right? From art to music to mixing to... You know the more technical design. elements of it. Yeah, exactly. So I think that what they're demonstrating is they have the capacity to create industry or cultivate industry themselves. And what I argue is through that process is actually what they're doing is mirroring the legit through the kind of creation of a field and all of this kind of stuff. They're mirroring basically the more central fields of power where they're producing elites mm. that then become their kind of specialist cultural producers and mm. and uh, speak on their behalf like a bit. And you know, and there's always ups and downs of that right so uh, to be honest I prefer to have the street elite <laughs> yeah, yeah. talking to, talking to man or talking for man than some of the kind of conventional elite yeah. and I'm glad that those voices are there in some ways mm. but at the, other, at the same time obviously I realise that it does also increase the pressure on people it also makes people start to feel like raw more inadequate 
and gives senses or a sense of expectation that perhaps is unrealizable. And that's the dilemma, isn't it? Because as much as the creative industry is a really good vehicle for change, it's only the creative industry. It's not really talking about broader problems of employment, broader problems, right. do you know what I mean? And it, it really does still kind of, how do we get that energy, harness that energy, but then be able to spread it across yeah. more fields and more spaces? When I speak to the kids, it's about that transition mm. into adulthood, trying to think differently about yeah. stuff. Do the same stuff, yeah. but think differently. So broaden, broaden what you think. I think... When I was growing up, because you don't have the access to things like the internet and stuff like that, so you, you're very narrow, man. But I said, yeah, there's, there's so much options, that, but you, can, you just need to see it. You need yeah, to see it to believe it, man. Street life, I can see it, man. Yeah, so I believe yeah, it. Yeah. But when you're... When kids now, they've got more options. So they can see more stuff. Yeah. I hope so, anyway. I don't know if all the options they have are better options. Yeah. Well, no, they definitely have possibilities. You see those possibilities. So yeah. you can see lawyers and doctors and yeah. surgeons and stuff like that. We're not as visible as I used to be. Mm. I'm literally just sat here, like, nodding. I'm sorry, I'm sorry listeners. I yeah, I keep, like... <laughs> I keep forgetting I keep forgetting that we're on a podcast. I'm just, like, sat here with, like, hands on my chin just listening to Yusuf, like, yeah, yeah. definitely. Right. Totally right. agree. Totally agree. Do you know my thing, actually? My actual position on everything, yeah, is that... I only know it to the extent that I don't know it in it, and that doesn't make any sense. But it's that's the I that's my philosophy. It. It's like I don't I, I don't feel that. sure about all of these things. Like I feel sure that the mum pain exists, and I understand it kind of to an extent. But I understand that also there could be other ways of explaining things, and I think that that's kind of what sociology is for me. It's about finding a way to explain something, and I don't always think that my way is the only way to explain things. And I also confront a lot of issues that I try to approach pragmatically right I try to approach them critically but also pragmatically so I look at the things about in the way that I would like to see them happen so I'd like to see actually should I tell you what the truth is what I think would be the solution for a lot of our problems is greater redistribution um, <laughs> <laughs> much greater uh, redistribution both symbolically and uh, economically increasing like good quality housing like a decline in uh, consumerism things like that those are things that I think would be important I mean that still doesn't explain away racism I still don't think that that would necessarily get rid of racism and, and racial inequalities or gendered inequalities and I think there's still but things help that people, man. Done. but help as people. an initial stage yeah, yeah. I think we're thinking about the be, everyday I think yeah. that actually greater redistribution would be by far the most effective way when we're talking about <laughs> knife crime when we're talking about we need to, to tackle so yeah, many yeah. of our problems right yeah. And, and that's my truth, right? That's that's where I come from. But when we're talking about, then we're talking about enterprise and encouraging young people mm. to do enterprise, I also see how we're perpetuating problems by doing mm. that, right? And I see that. But at the same time, I'm looking at young... Look, me and you are in the same situation where I know people living and breathing and dying in these circumstances, yeah. right? So I'll take anything, you, mm. <laughs> you get me? And I'll look at mm. something and I'll try and find the value in it. Mm. Because... Otherwise, what am I just going to leave everyone there to, mm. with nothing and no opportunities and no possibilities? So, this is it. but you, you try. <laughs> it's not it's not a perfect fit, but you try to bring people through, in it, man. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of the the. It's about within the system that we're in. What things can we do, right? Mm. Because I don't have the sense that dramatic social change in the way that we're talking, like you know, in terms of redistribution, yeah. having yeah. a more egalitarian, a more. Uh, loving and caring society is going to happen anytime soon, right? I just, I just, I don't know. Like, I think how you teach it or how you can get people on board with it. But one of the things I've been thinking about recently is like, I've always just had this just sense of like, wanting to bring people along the road with me, mm. if you know what I mean. I'm not talking about the road. I'm talking about the, the talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. like life. Like I've always wanted to, 
I've always wanted to. I've, I don't. I don't know what it is. For as long as I can remember, I don't remember thinking about myself as an individual and I'm not even trying I'm not trying to big myself up or anything like that there's so many things that I do which are individualistic mm-hmm. but when it comes to work social life whatever like I've always just wanted to do like I don't know how do you uh, fu- roots, it? Like, yeah to like trying to create people, more yeah. possibilities for people and I don't does that come from think- growing up in a working class environment does it come from like going through not having stuff. I don't know. Like, because I think there are obviously people that are wealthy that I feel like that not. to an extent, but it's just so. I'm going to say one thing. I think it's a load of things, man. Yeah. I feel like that, like, again, I, like, we can only speak from uh, our experiences. I think I just want to help my pals, isn't it? I just want to help my pals. Yeah. We, and that's, and that's that kind of mentality I had. Like, mm. if I can bring my friends through or sort someone out, it's like, that nonsense I can get you into a club that kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah, ticket, yeah, I can get you a ticket I can get you this but, but then but that's then, capital though right yeah yeah it, it, but then it's but then I feel like it's like it, because you can say that's how we get if you think of like nepotism at the top mm. like for elites like they're all helping like Should each other something funny yeah. go on back in the day there was this like the woman got in bare trouble for doing fraud or something, but she led this like youth programme called like peer motivators or something and she was trying to establish parallel networks of really so she was like Getting going to schools and getting the gifted and talented working class BME students and trying to get them through university to create parallel networks. Right. <laughs> I know I don't know how successful that was in there. In fact, it didn't. To infiltrate. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's um, like. For me, uh, you said the word possibility. And yeah. The word possibility is a word that I, I, I believe in. Like, because I think that the best thing we can create is possibilities, right? Because not everyone wants to come and do academia. Mm-hmm. Not everyone wants to come and do this thing or that thing. Or, or, do you know what I mean? But what I think is problematic for these young people is they feel that they don't have possibilities. Or the possibilities they have are so far away and so vague and so like, insecure. They have to accept the possibilities that are close and immediate and accessible. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's one of the, 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 the big problems, isn't it? And I think... I don't really know. When, when I have conversations with people, what I try to do is I try to engage them in what they want, engage them in what they, they're interested in. And I don't always have the answers or solution or the networks. I'm, you know, a working class academic from Brixton. And I, don't, like, I don't know yeah. how to help people most mm. of the time. You get me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if they want to get into the academy, I probably can't help them. So, <laughs> so, so, so like, in, in that respect, I find it challenging. But I think that that we are definitely in a moment, you know, if you're looking at social mobility, even though I don't think social mobility is that desirable, like I said, I think that actually it's about redistribution of, mm. you know, all different kinds of value, right? But um, social mobility is really a low, isn't it? And, and it's very difficult for those young people to find those possibilities. I think you've actually just said what I was trying to say, Yusuf. I was trying to say, like, how do those people that are at the top or that are even middle class or whatever, that how do they like move through their life just being able to ignore like all of this stuff and I know again that sounds slightly I'm not trying to sound I'm not trying to be like self-righteous or the idea of like people around me wanting to bring as many people with them as possible is about a redistribution of various capitals what Mm. how do we get more of the people that have got those capitals to recognize that they need to redistribute I think one of the things that the reason why people don't want to do it is because insecurity is spread across the social system yeah. right so everybody feels insecure yeah right not just poor people living on road mm. you get me but i think what, what what's alarming at the moment is like the extent to which people have accumulated so much 
that they couldn't spend it in 10 lifetimes. Yeah. They could, do you know what I mean? It's not like the amount that people have, particularly, you know, we're talking about... Um, I always talk to Leon, innit? You know Leon at Warwick? I always talk to him about how we could write an article on the way in which knife crime and climate change are connected, right? Because mm. I think it's the same process of dispossession and accumulation which leads to these things happening, right? Is that you dispossess the poor of their sense of value, of who they are, their values, as in their mm. common values that they share between each other, and you dispossess them also of their capital, like their economic capital. And all of that somehow, like, doesn't trickle down, but flows up. You see, <laughs> I can't remember, I think the, the head of Disney gets paid mm. $65 million a year. Mm. It's, it's, it's insane. T, you do these faces, so when we're in the sorry, podcast, sorry, 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 people sorry, can't sorry, see sorry, sorry, your sorry, sorry. No, but he just did another mic drop face, everyone. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I forget, I forget, I forget. But it's true. And I think the vlog is coming, the vlog's coming soon. But, I think that, but then what happens is that, you know, people, everybody becomes a bit ruthless, you get me? Mm. Is that the academy is a cutthroat place. So, like, when I started in university, I thought, right, man's left Bricky and, you know, I'm going to be exposed to the nice life now, isn't it? Nah, man. This, this yeah. is the jungle too, bro. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> don't get it twisted. Like, people chew you up here as well. Mm. At least on road, like, you kind of get more of a sense of who you're people enemy. People say what they mean. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> <big> <laughs> right? And people say what they mean as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's a, that's a difference. I mean, I can't say that, you know, it's exactly the same. Like, I can't, like, I don't know who I would be if I wasn't who I am in terms of, you know, I'm Dr. Yusuf, right? I'm Yusuf with the PhD. I've done this. I've got this story that I came from Brixton. And that's a sense of value, right? There's mm-hmm. some value connected to that. And then, obviously, if you look at other people from my environment, they have to cultivate their value in different ways. Mm-hmm. So a part of your value is also your story in it and what you're connecting to it. And that kind of, a lot of the narratives that they attach themselves to are like the American dream, social mobility, rags to riches kind of stories, right? That's what a lot of people are attaching themselves to. And I think when we talk about possibilities, there's also alternative possibilities for alternative value. Yeah. How can we value people? Because they're people and they're valuable. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And they're important, right? I think we don't do enough of that. We don't, you know, distribute value, you know, in the way that we recognise or recognition, mm. you know, like maybe not in the same sense as Nancy Fraser and people like that, but... About, about assigning value, so you obviously have a structure. Mm. And how does this structure affect those things? So the idea, like, aspiration. Yeah. The, the aspiration in the mainstream is to have nice things. And, and how does that drive street life and those values? Yeah, basically, what I would argue is the last thing man on road want is a revolution. <laughs> they want a piece of the good life, innit? Yeah. You get me? Mm. Not just man and young women as well. Yeah. You know, in different ways. I interviewed people that did all different kind of things and, you know, um, that had all different kinds of... What I argued, basically, is women and men had differential strategies. So, like, the world is a gender space. Uh, women would pursue certain strategies and men would pursue certain strategies to co- cultivate value. So they'd be kind of gendered forms of capital. So, like, one guy I interviewed, she was a stripper for a while, right? And she did that and she cultivated her appearance and she mm. did a lot of stuff like that. And that was one of her strategies to accumulate value. And that is another thing which is very clearly exchangeable into more... Hmm. Uh, established yeah. fields of value, right? More powerful fields of value. Yeah. So you can see there's things that they're doing that they're, they're cultivating this value and they have this idea, like on road, of trying to become something or somebody or become more powerful or more comfortable or whatever it is, you get me? And I think that they're, they're quite bought in. And actually, I think aspiration and aspiration talk, rather than being about um, the creation of value or the you know the growth of the economy whatever it is it's actually about consent 
It's about buying people into consent. It's about giving people a story to say that you can have a piece of this thing. Mm. So you got to be with us on this mm. and not bun, ruin it for everyone in it, yeah. bun it down. So. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I think that definitely. it's one of the ways of kind of disciplining, like disciplining in a different way, in a different sense to the way that people are police. Like I've written about policing and other stuff as well. Like mm. I had all different, so in my piece, I had all different sites where this struggle was happening in spatial sites, in the home, gendered struggles. Uh, kind of in cultural production through music and stuff like that there's all different sites where this struggle is taking place all of the time mm. is what I'm arguing is that there's not many spaces and one of the things I'm actually interested in what spaces are actually free from these forms of struggle and contestation and there's not many I think we've talked about a few like decolonising groups and stuff mm. I go to which again decolonising is another really quite unclear like what the, the <laughs> there was an eye roll there I'm not going to say it from me but <laughs> know, it's another quite unclear concept right um, I like decolonising from like like the Gaminda yeah, the Yasmin like all that stuff but I don't yeah. like the decolonising with the institution led by well, the institution because they, they don't know what they're, they're doing, doing, it? They're they doing don't know. Anything, also yeah. it's not in the interest to decolonise yeah they're not going to decolonise because it's not in the interest like this is what we're saying isn't mm. it one of the things is that even if you've got enough wealth to last you 10 generations or whatever, it's still not enough for some reason. Yeah. Like, you still don't want to do something that you perceive that any kind of redistribution, even in the long term, if it's in your benefit, in the long term, because it means that there, we ha still have a planet that we can live on and we still, you know, society's not a really, really dangerous place and all these other reasons. You still don't want to do you it. You still don't want to do it, innit? So it's like... And, but then at the same time, like... You find yourself like I find myself even sometimes getting brought in, like brought into these narratives. Sometimes I'm just like, rah, like this is frustrating because you feel like I work so hard and da da, da and then you have to like slap yourself and say like, well, come on, bro, like, yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But it's, it's, it's like that, innit? And I can understand that that's like the prevailing doctrine or common sense in society, and that yeah. is what the cons that's why we consent to this. Mm. We consent to this society with so many problems globally, yeah. nationally, so many problems, right? But we consent to it because that's our buy-in to mm. some extent. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, Yusuf, before we finish, was yeah. what it was like going into the field or being at home in the field and... A methodological one, yeah. Yeah, methodological yeah, yeah. one. Because this is something that I'm trying to write about at the moment, even in yeah, my yeah, thesis. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it like being in the field and trying getting people to talk about lived experiences that have remained silent? So that are basically, they're part of the everyday, but you want them to give voice to that. It's one of the things that, honestly, it's taken me such a long time to write this chapter. What it's mm. like talking to people. Did you get a lot of that? Yeah, yeah so talking about everyday, so in, in my research, it's talking about everyday experiences of racism that occur within the town they live in, but also mm. that occur within the family as well. If pe the the interview, the ethnographic interview becomes a space where they actually explain what has happened for the first time, mm. what so and I can imagine so that must have happened. Sometimes, in most yeah. So yeah, you yeah, so you're yeah. getting your participants and you as the researcher to assign meaning to these yeah, situations. Yeah, what yeah. can you talk a little bit about that in terms of your research? Yeah, most definitely. So, like, there's all different kinds of people that try to explain this. So, like, actually, I, I spent... You know what I did, yeah, my methodology chapter, my thesis, yeah? I just, like, I was like, I know about all this inside research stuff, but I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started off, I did a whole chapter about, I'm an insider, I've got this, I've got that, and Les was like, Chantal, no. 
that, you don't need to. You don't need to. You don't need to do that. You don't need to. I didn't really. I don't really like. So inside the research, yeah. I'm not saying like obviously it's interesting or whatever. But I didn't think really it spoke to what I was doing. Yeah. Like, cause it doesn't. I just don't think it grasps the complexity of the relationships that you're having with people because. I don't have an exclusively insider relationship with everybody. No. Man can be from road, but we might not have an insider relationship. Mm. We might have some form of conditional relationship or we might know each other from somewhere or... Do you know what I mean? Is that it's always a bit different. It's mm. not always... I think in professional settings where they hold, where they do, do those things, maybe it has a different set of meanings, is it? If I work with someone in a workplace, maybe it has a more clearly defined set of meaning. But when I'm going into each interview encounter that relationship is like variable right it's not always the same um so i try to acknowledge that more in my positionality of who i am and what i'm bringing to the table um or bringing to that encounter um in terms of bringing up that new knowledge that's why i use that kind of um inductive methodology right and sensitizing the idea of sensitizing concepts is to try and draw out these things because sometimes the things are the things that are said between things being said yeah or they're the things that kind of are touched on very briefly but repeatedly or across all the different interviews or I don't know it's it's, it's a hard one isn't it but I just kind of let it play out and then yeah. as I'm letting it play out I try to see what this thing is and how it feels and what shape it takes and do you know what I mean it's like a wit once yeah the, the one thing is this is a Liz story as well actually Liz, Liz back and Stuart Hall had that interview and he asked him how did you know that Thatcherism wasn't was a new thing and it wasn't gonna because they were talk about the pendulum pendulum always swings back in it right to left right to left or whatever. He said like, I don't know how I knew I just knew. Do you know what I mean? It's just a thing that I it was tangible in it like I just could or intangible rather mm. like I could just feel it I could sense it and he was right about that. Mm. And I think to some extent in the social sciences if you really want to do that work that opens up something and like you have to trust the fact that you know in it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Is that not beyond a doubt and not, you know, objectively necessarily, but you know that there's something in this and there's yeah. something new that has to be said and then that opens out to the field and then people can investigate it too. And that's kind of like what I was trying to do with the Montpain is that there's something here that's not being said. And actually, shall I give you a really good example of one of the things that I struggled with was um, gender violence, right? Mm. So I had a lot of girls giving me a lot of quite detailed and graphic stories about mm. gender-based violence a lot to the extent that you would believe it's endemic on road. I actually mm. believe it's endemic in society rather than just on road. Yeah, 100%. Right? So let's clarify that, mm. which is one of the reasons why I'm a bit cautious about mm. putting it out into the the, the kind of academic mm. sphere and I don't know how to do it, but I definitely know that the women I interviewed did want me to tell that story. Mm. Um, but the men didn't say anything, <laughs> right? Or they said very, very, very little. Mm. And so, like... I, it's, it's like what's not said. It's what's yeah. not said there, which is... Well, and that's... I'm not saying that they're, all, they're, they're, they're necessarily involved. Silence the doesn't that always yeah. imply guilt. Of course. But but I think that there's lots of different reasons why things aren't being said. Because I think... And that relates to the Montpain, and that's told... It was informative in the way that it wasn't informative. So, number one, it disabled me a little bit from being able to write those articles or write those things about gender-based violence, right? Mm. Because I didn't have... The, I don't feel like I, I fully grasped that because I don't have the whole story. But what it did tell me was there's something very, very, very vulnerable in these men that they weren't able to share with anyone. And there was a vulnerability in these men around women's sexuality, desire... One being desirable, mm. all of these things. 
and that was a part of their kind of cool pose or a part of their, do you know what I mean? And actually, if you read some of the research out there, like Jordy Miller's research and people like that, um, gender-based violence is more complicated. Mm. Is that it's more multi-directional, and it does exist within the context of patriarchy, and mm. a lot of violence is carried out against women, hundred percent. Like, there's no mm. question in that. But if you actually want to capture the complexity of it, you have to be able to understand how that the vulnerabilities in these men are also being exploited. And these vulnerabilities are also a product of, of capitalism and patriarchy, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and I didn't feel like from what they were saying to me, I could quite grasp that. Mm. Or I wasn't... Sh- I mean, I'm still thinking about it. I still have to look over the data again and think mm. about the possibilities. There's definitely a lot of stuff I can write about love and desire, mm. but I don't know about the gender-based violence stuff. It's much more complex. So like, things that Jodie Miller would say is that girls would be doing violence to men and men would be doing violence to women, but it was about the severity of the violence and the way that the violence is understood. Yes, yeah. And then you contextualise it in the, the, kinda, the framework of street patriarchy, which is generally a masculine-dominated space. All of those kind of things is a, a lot of uh, sexual violence, which happens in public space anyway, but also in the context of the roads, there's a lot of sexual violence as well. Um, and then you can start to explain the story. But that was that thing with that little missing piece, which mm. was informative in some ways about something that wasn't being talked about, yeah. but in other ways made it difficult for me to write about things that were being talked about. Mm. So there's like, that's kind of one of my kind of dilemmas that came in that kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that really, like... That really helps. I'm going to have to listen back to this whilst it's I finish this chapter. Whilst I listen <laughs> to this chapter. No, because it is like, so, yeah, yeah. what is just so, <laughs> so interesting about being like, being in the field and talking about marginalisation, vulnerability with people is what is said and what isn't said and what is taken to be, what is taken to be normative and when you question those normative practices with the participants in a thoughtful and meaningful way, yeah. and you see them sort of start to think, yeah. oh, yeah, maybe that was, maybe I did do that because of that, or maybe I did, mm. like, maybe that happened because of that. Do you know what? Do you know? Do, 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 yeah. Like, and I think one of the things as well is that on road, one thing that I say is that even though it's a lot of ways it's a judgmental space, in some ways, it's a really non-judgmental space. Like, it's judge, they'll judge you on the trainers that you're wearing. Mm. But everyone knows that everyone's been going through some stuff, right? Yeah. So they don't want to speak on it. Yeah, yeah. I can't speak on, like, our, this one his explanation on, we're talking about baby moms. I've got a lot of data on baby moms. <laughs> that idea of a baby mom, right? And, um... He was just like, some men like their baby mum and some men don't. And so, just, <laughs> some but that's part of the, yeah. you know every I mean? da- that's the every day. But what you yeah. read about it also is about the ambiguity of that concept, right? And how that ambiguous concept can be used as a part of the patriarchal system of domination, right? Yeah. About distancing and like mm-hmm. uh, cool pose and things like that. And also about men's vulnerabilities. So they might be using that term, which is ambiguous, either to, to disguise the fact that they're truly in love with this person, they care about this person a great deal, or to maintain their connection over somebody that is completely disconnected from them and contain an yeah. element of control and influence over in a person's life that they're completely disconnected from or they shouldn't really have that level mm. of control over, right? So there can be all different strategies within that ambiguity that are being used, right? And, and mm. there's some really interesting things to draw out from that. And I think that... So that's kind of my reflection on it. And a lot of my stuff seems to be about gender, but... <laughs> and gender probably is the most ambiguous thing on road, probably. Like, it's the thing mm. that is the hardest to write about. Mm. But, um, yeah, man. We'll definitely... Uh, maybe there's an article in that one day. Speak, man. Speak. Speak, man. I think you've got... I think in terms of, like, thinking about 
taking this back to the academy and sociology, I think the res- the ongoing research that you're doing, Yusuf, is incredible in terms of how we think methodologically about these topics as well as the actual data that you that um you bring because I think that like you said your where your experience and how you relate to your participants is the missing piece do do, do you know what I mean in terms of the academy and um research so so often we talk about on the podcast like how much people that are close to us or communities that we're from have been the subject of so much research but how few people we know from our backgrounds that are the researchers and that's not in a sense that's not in a sense to reproduce these structures but but more to do things in a way that's different but you see the the, the, the voices that you've given the, the the stories that you give voice to it's done mm. in a way that's contextualized and makes sense and it makes people it makes people the people who are knowledge producers traditionally in the mm. academy Gives it a different slant. What no, become, become the epistemology, the knowledge that become, the knowledge that you use now that's becoming epistemology reflects the street in a different way. So we're not always seen as like caricatures, basically. Yeah, it's more, it's more I know. I really appreciate you guys saying that, and it was, it was nice. Still, I'm very touched by him. <laughs> Yeah, no, but that's just that's, yeah, that is yeah, what it is. Well, no, what I was gonna say is something to the brothers that I say that are coming through, whether they're doing PhDs or ancestors as well. Mm. You know, I say brothers, but usually I just mean everyone. So, mm. um, and um, is that you've got to tell the story, but you've got to tell it in a way that it sits with your conscience, right? Is that we have to tell the truth, we have to tell the truth, but we also have to understand the truth in relation to like, our judgments and dispositions, right? Like, we can't understand the truth outside of that. Like, and if we try to pretend that we do, we're probably lying. And I think the people that pretend that they do, they do it because they're trying to uh, mobilise or leverage power a lot of the time. And I just try to tell that story in the way that I can. And I think a lot of people, like, in from my situation, a lot of the time they get groomed by more senior academics to think in a certain way or to... Mm-hmm. Uh, give them participants and add to their research or whatever it is in it and there's sort of like a power imbalance there one of one of the things i say from my supervision with like rachel thompson was my second supervisor but she did a lot of the supervision and susie scott as well um she was my supervisor yeah and they were quite hands-off with me they didn't try to make me think about it have you thought about this have you thought about that you haven't got this this thing in your literature review partly because probably neither of them knows more about road than me and which would make sense, right? Because neither of them from the roads, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and partly because they they let me say what I felt like I needed to say. They valued your knowledge as well. Yeah, and I think that that's what I say is that we should always remember that we have to place things in their social context and try to explain things. But also, we should always imagine that our participants could punch us in the face if they wanted to. <laughs> 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 Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think that that's a good way to approach things ethically as well. Mm. It's like, rah. If someone said that about me, would I bang them in the face? Of course. Mm. <laughs> but, like I said, but, when they, but then when those guys do it, like, I remember my supervisor, he was saying to me, he, he was studying um, Tuppy Isaacs down where I live. It's like an old mm. seafood thing. Mm. And he was there, and he wrote stuff about them, and the guy didn't like it. Mm. But he, he just got a bit proud. He got scared. Yeah. <laughs> but, he, but there was no company. He didn't feel, that he didn't feel yeah. bad that he spoke about, spoke about it afterwards, but there was yeah. no urgency. Yeah. You get me? So, like... The one that I feel most cautious about is the the women's narratives. Yeah. 
like for different reasons I feel like representing them correctly is really important mm. but doing that without pathologising mm. like minoritised already marginalised young men and that's the thing that you know I think is going to that's why I'm sitting on it I'm not yeah. trying to rush but you don't have to you don't have to rush yeah you don't have to rush you think, you think like them that. through you think and them through thinking about if there's like good female co-authors and people like that that yeah. can help me to think through those problems and hold me to account yeah. and things like that in it and I mm. think that there's always dilemmas and and probably if we want to comment on the wider academy one of the problems of the academy is we don't get enough time to think about what we're doing we're told publish 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 ref 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 tef 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 so we're teaching big cohorts of three certain hundred students and then we're having to try at the same time publish write research bids blah 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 so we don't ever really get the time to think about these things really properly right and it leads to us making miscalculations and misjudgments or perhaps not representing things or doing things in a deep enough way. And I think that, yeah, the one thing as well is to be able to take time with it, mm. which is what funded PhDs are, are good for, right? That's why I had a funded PhD and I could take a bit more time mm. to think about what I was saying. And that's why I think there should be more of those available yeah. <laughs> to, to people of colour and people yeah. from marginalised backgrounds. Because, and right now, for example, there's none that are actually targeted yeah. at minoritised groups. Although a lot of people thought I got mine because I was minoritised, but I don't. Actually. People say that to you. Honestly, you academics, sometimes just be cool, just don't say anything. Just sometimes. <laughs> I, had, I had a girl punch me in the arm once when she found out I was a funded student. She was really what? happy that I was on the Masters of her, yeah. Mm. I was on a master's, I was doing the social research master's or whatever, yeah. the ESRC thing. And she was like, oh, so good for ages. She was like, oh, it's so great that you're here. Like, you know, and I was like thinking, how did you think I was here? Like, what, how am I paying for this? Mm. And um, one day we were talking and I was just like, oh, yeah, because I've got this grant thing or whatever, innit? And she just punched me in the arm, bruv. And I was <laughs> just what, like... In what, what, like, in a jokey way? Like, I don't know, like, it, it made her do it. It's like, it made her do it. And she was like, I was your reserve. I was the reserve. And oh. I was like, oh, bro. That's a lot. And then <laughs> from that moment, I swear to God, our relationship changed. Like, really? she was always like much more passive aggressive to me. Really? And like, yeah, had that experience. So, oh. I mean, there's a lot of things in there to potentially unpick. But wow. I think she perceived me as being like, also like, I, they, she felt like a lot of the academic staff probably were quite supportive towards me and not so supportive towards like, <laughs> I think potentially there could be also be a gender case that they're not always that supportive towards female researchers and that could have been a part of it and it mm. wasn't that so I couldn't say always that there's always there's a race I, class I don't know well, I think there's a I think you see I think you, and you I think you see this play out in multiple sectors when um, minoritized people are put in with majorities there's an assumption that we've been put there to help them look like they're being inclusive <laughs> and that's a problem in itself Man's because you get the amount of times that I've like been in spaces and they've looked at me like oh they're letting you lot in now like do you know what I mean like and people don't think this like that people don't realise this yeah, actually yeah, exists yeah, this yeah, plays happens, out happens, happens, this happens. plays out like well, we had it the other day out here we, there was a, two police officers harassing a black oh, yeah, woman yeah, yeah. me and Tisa were like what are you doing and then they were, no, he like listen, looked listen, at us. No, I walked over and he started saying, he started just getting, just getting leery, man. It's a police uh, officer. And, and then, then I tried to be rational and then he starts being rude to me. So I'm thinking... He's like, why are you here? Why are you here? And he's like, mm, PhD yeah. thing. And then and when I like, speak no, to him, and then the woman says, is there going to be any trouble? I said, me and I just have a conversation. <laughs> he's like, trying to arrest me, man. Like, 
I've had them once, but yeah. Um, anyway, so I'm, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to end there, guys. Even though that went so fast, like I was so good. Um, thank you for listening to Surviving Society. Please rate and subscribe. Um, we've got another episode coming up for our Patreon supporters. If you haven't yet started supporting us for a price of a couple of coffees. You can help us with our production cars, helping us get to more community organisations who we can pay for their time as well. Thank you, guys, and see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.